Good afternoon, everyone. This is Isle of Faces, episode 22. It's another Scraps and Scrolls. It's part 9 of 11 of the Game of Thrones and the Valar Realist project from History of Westeros. Hello, I am Sir Buckley. I'm talking to you from, all, as always, from sunny England. I've got my Batman slippers on. The sun is shining. I think we're good to go. I'm sure everybody knows what this is all about by now, and uh, we can probably head straight into it. Before I do, let me just say hello and... Of course, a hearty thank you to our lovely patrons and all their support. If any of you would like to have a look at that and see if you want to get involved, I'm sure you know you can find it on patreon.com slash artofaces. But, as for today, like I say, part nine, so we're right near the end now. It's all all kicking up, all going... Well, we're going to war, basically, today. Best way to sum it up, we are going to war. Let me quickly tell you which chapters we're going to go through today. A reminder is eight chapters today more than the usual seven yes you lucky souls you're wearing extra scraps and scrolls extra valoruridis what more could you ask for so the chapters then we begin with sansa four the one where sansa starts getting her cersei lessons mm. sansa gets me played by cersei not for the last time there is on to john seven the one where the, the dead guy comes back to life that's all you need to know Brand 6, the one where Rob rides to war. Mm. Daenerys 6, the one of the wine cellar and the attempt at murder. Catelyn 8, the one of the Stark reunion. We're going to come to this, but you can't actually uh, mess that chapter description up with any other chapter, because it only happens once. But anyway, Tyrion 7, the one with the clansmen, the one with Tyrion, more importantly, the one with Tywin. Da, 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 da. Yeah, Sansa Five, Sansa Five, the one where Sir Barry gets the sack. Pfft, poor Sir Barry, don't worry, he gets his own back. And Eddard Fifteen, yes, the bell tolls for Number Fifteen, the final Eddard chapter, the one in the black cells, the last one, the goodbye Ned. We'll get through it together. So also thank you to Aziz and Shea as always for their live stream on on Sunday and let me see maybe I can help with adding some extra notes here so let's go for it Sansa 4 then which as I said before is where Sansa begins off uh, hearing the carnage of the the Lannister fight against the Starks that we heard start in Ned's chapter last week she starts off there just held up in the tower not able to do anything but perfectly not aware specifically of what's happening but aware that something is happening which is probably even more scary and then gets dragged off before Cersei and the assembled small council to uh, be manipulated like we said so uh, I think as he's mentioned that Sansa's moving into a real prime POV position here before she she along with Arya has kind of been a supplementary to Ned Ned is the main cam- the camera if you like in King's Landing now Sansa is going to be because okay we have another Ned chapter coming up later but after that uh, and once I has gone as well it is just Sansa and I think that message is probably reinforced when we get to the end of Game of Thrones because Sansa's last chapter is the last one in King's Landing full stop so I think that's just a little hint from George of what's going to happen going forward into Clash and um, and Storm and even though we do eventually get Tyrion and Jaime and other POVs in King's Landing, Sansa is the only remaining pro-Stark POV. The other thing to notice about this chapter is that we go from the physical terror of Ned and Arya's chapters, where Ned is obviously in the throne room and gets a 
a little finger dagger under the neck and Aya is literally having to run away and see the actual fight between Syria Pharrell and Meryn Trant. That's all physical terror and here we get switched over to psychological terror where Sansa is held up in the tower. That old, uh, the old trope coming out in a different way. She's held up in the tower but she can't see or see anything. She's got to hear and imagine. Like I said, that's much, much worse and Jane Paul gets put in there and she can barely hold herself together to even string a sentence together. Can you blame her? So I think George, he wants to take us readers for a real ride in these these three chapters specifically, and he certainly succeeds. And Sansa thinks to herself, In the songs, the knights never screamed nor begged for mercy. So now Sansa is finally being confronted head-on with the brutal reality of a true fight. Her whole arc of Game of Thrones has been about learning what the songs actually are in real life and how they don't really match up. She's gone forwards on that a bit, she's gone backwards a little bit, kind of gone back into her comfort zone in her previous chapter to this. But now, all bets are off. It's real, gritty, brutal realism. All the trappings and the dressings of the tourney, which, is, bear in mind, was still pretty graphic for an 11-year-old. She did see someone get speared through the neck or jousted through the neck. All those trappings and all the kind of safety catches, all the training wheels, if you like, they're gone. And Sansa is just left with the awful details of what death and violence actually sounds like. So if we want to see Sansa free, her previous chapter to this, if we want to see that as her final attempts to impress songs onto reality and really try and make her reality into those songs, I think this is reality biting back with a, a resounding refusal and saying, no, this is how things are and you will realise it. Having said that, even with those sounds, Sansa can't quite admit what is happening to her. It's just easier to stay in the belief that everything will turn out okay, that Cersei will help her eventually, and marrying Joffrey will settle everything. This is all just a big misunderstanding that can be sorted out in a minute. And that's easy to denounce that way of thinking as grown-ups reading this book, but I think if we're all honest with each other, most adults would actually choose this route as well, letting alone... Uh, 11 12 year old girl who has suddenly zero defenses around her let's not forget that bit Sansa has grown up around guards and fighting men and she has all brothers and Ned and her mother as well obviously even when she comes down south there's still those 50 men even though it got taken down to 40 and 30 or whatever she still has guards and start men all around her they're all suddenly gone that is quite a change very quickly for a young child to have that safety net just ripped right out. Now, while we're talking about the sounds and screams, I think we have to mention Jane Poole's screams and how that really brings the different conflict to life. It's, if we talk about Sandra and her songs, well, George is always saying about the Song of Steel and the Song of Swords. Those come up in John's chapters and other people's. So now this is a new song for Sansa, basically. And like I said, having to hear the bloodshed is probably worse than actually seeing it because you've had an imagination. Sansa doesn't even get to do something. At least with Aya, she has a sort of mission of survival and she can, okay, I've got to run to there and then I've got to get over here. It's something to do which can take away the fear a little bit. Whereas Sansa just has to sit and she doesn't know if her door's going to get kicked down and she's going to be stabbed any minute. She doesn't know what's happening. So I think that's actually a worse, a worse fate in a way. But after that, uh, things start to calm down and Sansa gets to do something finally when she gets uh, summoned to the, the council chambers. 
And early on, we see that she's got good instincts with her dress. She chooses like a, a, a normal woolen kind of, not flashy if you want this, uh, just a kind of humble dress, we'll call it. Not that I'm probably the, the best person to comment on anyone's fashion choice. But from what I get, she's choosing something that's still starky. She is still a Stark, but she's not rubbing it in anyone's face. That's how I, how I took it. And she doesn't think outright, I'm going to choose this dress because this reason is still under the surface for her. But she's making a political decision here. She knows this is her game. Let's not remember. Courtesy is her armour and her weapon as well, if you want to see it. And this is part of that courtesy. She's making the socially correct choice. So she's not saying that outright, but she knows. But she does say outright that why she's polite to Boros and manages to smile somehow. It's quite a, a feat. She manages to smile at the Lannister guards and... It's just amazing skill and poise from Sansa that she's able to be <laughs> able to be polite like this, given the three days of horror that she's just been through. And I think Tyrion will later say in Storm, I think it's, a, it's either at their wedding or at Joffrey's wedding, I can't remember, but saying that she has a good nose for this type of thing and she would make a good queen and because she knows how to play this game and this is... We're seeing that right now, right here. I also just think it's a nice mirror that both of the Stark girls, they immediately fall back on their respective trainings once things get serious. We saw last week, things went bad for Aya and she was repeating Sirio's mantras and his lessons and that helped her survive. Sansa, things have gone bad, so she falls back on knowing which dress and knowing her manners and knowing how to act around people. It's the different types of trainings coming through it's the respective weapons of the stark sisters now she gets taken to the small council chambers we can see the kind of the cleaning crew are in the fight is obviously over we know that already because it had been quiet for a little while and uh, it says like a, someone's being lowered into the into the moat because we can guess there's bodies down there and like we said last week there's something a bit a bit extra in cutting down unarmed people we said about Holland last week he was just uh looking after the horses but he got killed Septim Ordain she's obviously unarmed and not going to do any harm but she was killed Veon Poole was just a steward he's not a fighting man probably also dead what well, we'd know also dead and so it's giving us a glimpse that the Lannisters are really going they've gone too far almost they didn't need to do it in that fashion so that's another link to flashing forward to the Red Wedding where just anyone is being slaughtered and whether you're a soldier or whatever. And um, yeah, let me back this up with a little quote. She says, She knew there had been fighting, but surely no one would harm a steward. Veon Paul did not even wear a sword. So there you go. Same as Holland, same as Septim Ordain. This is just a slaughter now. It's not a, a military tactical move. It's just out, outright slaughter. But so Sansa moves past that. She gets to the small council chambers and now we get to see the... Not the first interaction between Cersei and Sansa, but the beginning of what their relationship is going to be remembered as. And that is Cersei enacting emotional and mental cruelty. Instead of physical, we've had enough of physical cruelty. She's just walked past all that. Now it's emotional, mental, cruelty and manipulation. And it seems very early on that Cersei wants to uh, quash Sansa. She wants to kind of contain her and not let her get too big for her boots in the same way I think that Littlefinger did to Ned he kept Ned kind of off balance and didn't let him realize what power he had or all the options he had 
this is a different situation, but Cersei wants Sansa to stay young and stay naive so that she can be more easily manipulated. She doesn't want to educate Sansa or enlighten her to the world at large because then Sansa is harder to control. So she's going to keep her dumb and easy, essentially. That's Cersei's way of thinking. Funny enough, this is the first time we actually see Cersei interact with many of the small council members, and we don't really get a lot of it going forward other than Pycelle, because uh, soon uh, Littlefinger is off to the Vale and off to uh, the Tyrells before that, and eventually, obviously, Varys will disappear. So we do get a few a few glimpses during through Tyrion's POV during Clash of Kings when they're all still there, but she doesn't. She's not having that kind of influence that she is here. Definitely not. I think Aziz might have touched on this quickly. It's just quite funny, Littlefinger just dismissing Rob out of hand. He wants to focus on Hoster. Why? Because Hoster is his ultimate enemy. He wants all the swords pointed in Riverrun's direction, uh, despite Jamie and Tywin already being there to do exactly that. He doesn't care about Rob. He's he wants the he wants to claim the triple crown almost. He's taking revenge on John Aaron. Now he's taking revenge on Ned. And Hoster is the bigger enemy than both of those, as we know. So hmm, he wants to push that uh, agenda forward. Speaking of Littlefinger, somehow, amazingly, it's quite impressive in a way. Except it's actually sickening. He gets even creepier in this chapter than before. He's openly staring at Sansa and she feels incredibly uncomfortable at this, as you would. He's referring to her as a teenage, uh, a teenage Catelyn again. And you can really imagine that he's just feeling incredibly smug with himself for defeating the evil Ned Stark and uh, getting his own back for all the wrongs that were done to him as a child. And it seems like he's basically, it's almost cartoonish. He's basically looking at Sansa as if she's a victory prize, that she's a trophy. Yeah, okay, fine. You take Catelyn away from me? Well, I'm going to ruin your whole life and take your daughter instead. That's the kind of thinking this guy has. And given that we know uh, from much later on in Dance that he is asking for Sansa's hand in marriage around this time, we're not too uh, certain on the exact timing, but ugh, it just makes it even more weird. He basically, like I say, it's a cartoon. He's basically slobbering at this point. He's just got the big cartoon eyes, he's drooling at Sansa. Ugh. And yet, somehow, that's not his worst part in the chapter. Uh, again, I think as he's touched on this, but it's just too big for me to ignore. I've got to touch on it because uh, I think I said in the flick chat that this, if you're a rereader, this is the saddest line in the entire book of Game of Thrones. Uh, let me read it to you. Lord Peter leaned forward. I'll find a place for her. And that is, of course, in reference to Cersei asking about Jane Poole. <sighs> So we as rereaders, we know what is in store for Jane at the hands of Littlefinger over the next year, 18 months, however long. She doesn't leave this situation until Jamie is back in Storm of Swords, again, I think as he said. So we know what Littlefinger puts her through during that year, 18 months. And I'm not going to go into it because I don't think I'd be able to continue the podcast, but... We also know that somehow it actually even gets worse for her when she escapes that and heads back north. So for me, this is peak sickening stuff by Peter Baelish and why he is the the villain of A Song of Ice and Fire, to me anyway. I'm sure many people will agree, many people will not. And you might have different reasons, but this might be the one that turns it, uh, clinches the title for him for me. 
and the ease with which he and Cersei speak of Jane the like offhand manner as if it, it's literally just a detail it's just uh, cleaning up it really turns the stomach it really does now this um I think as he's covered the uh, actual interaction between the small council members and Sansa enough so I won't go into that but towards the end of the chapter Sansa gets to go back to her room uh, minus Jane obviously sadly so she returns to her beloved stories now at the end as a form of comfort. And like I said, much is made of different types of armour in this book. John, he has to find an armour on his advice from Tyrion, who has always had the armour against his... who has always forged an armour from against the jokes about him being a dwarf, etc. Aya has to find her own armour in Syria's mantras, like we said. And this is where Sansa is forging hers. The stories might not be real, and she might not, and she might be realizing that finally. But she is smart enough to know that the lessons from those stories can be, and she can use them to survive in King's Landing, and she does so in the next two books. So Sansa is completely and utterly alone by the end of this chapter now. Even though she still believes that Cersei and Joffrey might be on her side slightly, or at least that she can connect with them in some way, she is alone physically and emotionally and the stories are all she has so she invests in them and there's a the last line obviously that Sansa realized she had forgotten to ask about her sister which has probably been focused on too much from some people in the fandom but although you can take the last line as kind of damning you can also if you want to see it as a clue that Sansa intrinsically knows that Aya can actually take care of herself Maybe that's a stretch by me. Maybe that's me looking for the uh, for the good too much, but that's how I'm going to take it anyway. Okay, so let's rock on with John 7, where the dead men start walking. So if we spoke about Sansa's change in kind of structure and that chapter placement, let's do the same with John. And I think this is a, a reminder of the big overall story here, obviously, given what happens and what is revealed um i think it's a lesson in structure when we are we're kind of teased with the prologue if we look at the book overall we're teasing the prologue about these weird ice creatures and but then we kind of forget about it pretty much because king's landing becomes the preeminent plot or ned's investigation and everything going on there there's a reason we have three povs there and so many characters that's the main story of game of thrones so we drift away from the north and what's going on there it's only really john to remind us a little bit of Bran but mainly it's King's Landing it's other stuff to do with the war in Tyrion and Catelyn and there's Daenerys which is a bit about as far away as you can get from ice creatures as possible so George has made us wait until the climax of that King's Landing storyline to settle so if we okay you could say Ned's death is the real climax but the it's the big twist has happened the big change in that storyline has happened with Ned's downfall and being imprisoned and what's happened to Sansa and Aya so that was the climax and now it's settling down so now we're being reminded that nothing down south really matters all that much because of what is actually happening up north and at the wall so that's the big overall arc and the chapter follows that exactly almost as an early tease about dead men and what could happen and eerie stuff then there's a reminder about King's Landing with uh, the letter about Ned and what's happened, so we're distracted again by George and what's happening in King's Landing for the real story to come back with a bite, as in a white bite. I wonder if you all agree that it's just strange to think that we have whites below the wall 
at this early stage. They are past the wall, great defence against Death and the others, and they've got White's past it here, early Game of Thrones, which is weird given that we don't ever see them again, even on the north side of the wall. Well, they're still creeping and creeping forward, even in even at the end of Dance. There's such a big gap between us, just very strange. So at the beginning, we have this scene where we've found the bodies, they're in the forest still, and Sam is the one to speak up and make key points about why this isn't quite right and all these weird physical things aren't that should be happening aren't or shouldn't happen are. There's a big moment for Sam, given that it wasn't that long ago. He was being told he couldn't even say his vows. They wouldn't even have him, basically. And now he's there with the officers and with the Lord Commander, making key points and changing minds. And it's John who supports him yet again. He's the one to give him that push, just as Sam was the one to give John that push the previous chapter when John got annoyed about being a steward. I think Aziz mentioned about the animals reactions to the dead and how they they all want to stay away but not ghost he's happy to go right up to them and start having a bit of breakfast so i do wonder what that could mean obviously it's a signal that ghost is he is not like other animals but i want to know specifically what is it about him is it that ghost is something to do with death is it diabolus in general we will find out so sam's finding results in this really easily imaginable scene where they've got all the clues of the eerie goings on and they they add up until basically all the men of the Night's Watch, all the hardened warriors and veterans, go silent until someone quietly says, burn them. Like, seriously, just burn them. And you can just imagine them all kind of, no one wants to say it first, no one wants to be ridiculed or labelled as scared or anything, but they all are thinking it. Like, let's just, no one has to say anything, let's just burn them and walk away. And no one's, like I say, no one's ready to actually declare anything, but the feeling is there, and it's strong enough to unsettle these grizzled veterans of above the wall in the haunted forest. So there we go. So we move to there from the the eerie stuff to the distraction of politics in King's Landing. And the news of Ned allows us to see how far those ripples of his downfall have already travelled. Said last week that John is the most isolated POV, not Daenerys, because there is actually a lot of links between Daenerys and Robert and Varys and Jorah and all of that. But now John is being connected again to the main story. And it's weird because he's so he's literally just become a black brother officially. He said his vows last week. And he's found a place and he feels part of the the system and everything else. And then basically straight away he's singled out again as Jon Snow, as the bastard of Ned Stark, because everyone's pointing it out to him, basically, because they've also heard the news. Now, it's different, because when he got there, they were using that as ridicule, etc., etc. Whereas most of them now are actually being quite nice and saying comforting things. Not all of them, Alice Ford, looking at you. But in general, Jon has a, a pretty strong support group here. It's a far cry from that welcome he had when he first arrived. Back then he did have his inner circle of friends, but now it's just random people saying nice things to him. And Samwell, he inverts the idea of this all being of them all being brothers by so he says he suggests that John's family is now his family too, and everyone's family. They don't they don't normally look at it that way. It's that if you're a black brother, a member of the Night's Watch, then you're all family, not now you've connected to family backgrounds together all of house tarley and all of house stark that's what sam's saying and that's a nice idea that it become it comes from sam because he will be the one to meet one of john's family when he meets bran in um storm of swords at the night fort 
I don't think that particular fort from Sam has ever really been looked at again, but it's an interesting one. So like I said, Alex of Fawn, he is uh, not as supportive, and John has a bit of a reaction, which is fair enough. Already in these first two chapters of today, we've got believable reactions. A sheltered girl like Sansa would react like Sansa has, especially a young preteen girl. She would try and convince herself that Cersei and Joffrey would help her and everything would turn out okay. In the same way that an angry teenager would react like John does when he attacks Alistair. To be fair, he go, John does go pretty far. He literally, I think, tries to kill Alistair Fawn, but uh, not an out-of-the-world reaction for an angry teen who's just got the news that John has. So after John gets uh, sent to basically sent to his bedroom without dinner for his misbehaviour, he starts having dreams about the dead rising right after they've just found some whites for the first time. Hmm. Wonder if that's connected at all. Probably. And he also has thoughts about what it'd be like returning to Winterfell if Ned got banished and sent home. Thinks about Ned returning with Aya and Sansa. Obviously the focus is on Aya there. And it's the same teasing vibes that we get of um, when in Aya's last chapter when she's dreaming about Sirio and Winterfell and John before that reality hits her and won't be long before the reality also hits John when he gets his next letter about Ned. So early on in this chapter, the weather is described as warm and quite heavy, actually. It's quite uh, humid. It's almost uncomfortably warm, which you don't hear very much about the wall. Uh, but that is all before John hears about Ned. After the news about Ned, it is cold and windy, so George is creating a real di difference in atmosphere for us here. I do wonder, uh, John mentions about Lady in Nymeria being uh, either dead or lost, and I'm wondering... How he actually knows about that, whether Aya has been sending letters or even Ned has been sending letters, but I think we would know about that. Or is it kind of in a voice, direwolf knowing, warging type stuff? Don't know if that ever gets cleared up. Possibly, and I've missed it, but who knows. And then we get the fight itself with a really intense, incredibly intense ending. It's such good atmosphere by George, really nightmarish. And like I say, it's the ultimate reminder of how nothing down south really matters. It just doesn't. When you've got stuff like this, horrific stuff like this staring you in the face, you really don't care about any of the politics stuff. I think, um, again, Aziz covered that perfectly well, so I won't bother repeating. Although I do know that um, John, when the hand comes off and it's still moving, he says uh, the fingers opening and closing. And we do know that John does his own opening and close of closing of fingers after he burns his hand for the rest of his arc, so maybe that's where he gets it from. We've never really been given much follow-up on what uh, O4 and J for Flowers, or their white versions, the undead O4 and J for Flowers, were up to, uh, or anything about their ability to remember things and how they knew how to get to Jewel Mormon, or why they singled him out, and how they can hold a mission in their heads. We've never really got confirmation, and perhaps we won't. It's kind of fallen by the wayside even more, given that the Whites have n pretty much none of this, really, in the majority of the show. Obviously, in the show, we've seen a lot more Whites than we have in the books, so I think that kind of tends to dominate the uh, the memory of them. I think we can assume that they are going after Jewel Mormont because he's the head honcho, because they do get um, Jeremy Riker, who's the first ranger, well, acting first ranger, while Benjen's away. So it seems like they were going for Men of Command, there's a whole bunch of theories about why and uh, who and all that. I won't go into that now. There's uh, better people than me have made guesses about that. 
for now, I'll just say that that fight, that battle between John and the White, is honestly one of the more horrific things to read in the series. It's really well done. I do also wonder, though, one last note, if it's uh, if it's possible that whites can only be animated during the day, and if that explains what happens here. Have they Were they just pretending to be asleep? Or, I don't know. That might also explain why the Army of the Dead hasn't reached the wall yet, although I've always figured, personally, that that was by choice, and they've specifically been waiting for something or other. But again, the show kind of misses over our memory in that respect. And lastly, from that, um, from this chapter really there's the image of cold black hands on these whites and that will obviously come back to us again with Bran when he meets cold hands okay so let's move on to Bran speaking of him Bran 6 which is of course is where Rob says goodbye to Bran he says goodbye to Winterfell and uh, a lot of people say bye to their homes really never to return so like as he's got to there's a lot of northern politics uh, put in this and there's a war effort being mounted and it's all just probably quite exhausting for Rob really he's got if we thought he had enough on his shoulders before being the young lord and going around and having to re-up himself all the time now he's got to do it with a war effort where everyone's very obviously on edge and there's a threat of death in the air and etc etc even though we're in the quote-unquote exciting bit where everyone's all the banners have come and it looks like a mighty army and oh we'll go down south and all this stuff even then it's tense for rob because he's smart enough to know what's at stake here and he's got all these ambitious lords around him which is, this chapter should really dispel the notion that the northerners don't do politics they are more loyal to ned than most lords are to their liege lord around westeros but but ned ain't here rob is so they're just looking at how stark not ned stark specifically we shouldn't think of all Starks as brilliant at um, politics and expiring loyalty as Ned specifically. I'm sure a good number of them are, but Ned seems better than most, and they are coming to test Rob and see what they can get away with. We're going to see that later on in Clash with Wyman, Wyman Mandley. Obviously, Bruce Bolton, as the series goes on, is going to have a fair bit of ambition himself. And a good many of these lords do end up with complete loyalty to Rob as they did with Ned but that's not to discount the game and it's just a very different version in the south they do become loyal to Rob because he earns it but right now right here he's untested so they see him what they can get from him I suppose Ned would have faced something similar in his youth after Rickard and Brandon died how Stark would have seemed very rocky ground if given that most of them have just died it's pretty much just Ned left Ned and Benjen to be fair although he soon goes to the wall so House Stark would have seen a real, real rocky ground, and I'm sure more than a few lords uh, tried their chances with Ned to see what they could get out of him, and uh, obviously that didn't work out too well. Although I suppose a good deal of them may have perished in Robert's Rebellion also, so maybe not. We get two hints at future conflicts pretty early, pretty early in the chapter here, future conflict down the line between certain houses. Uh, so first quote, it says, Roose Bolton and Robert Glover both demanded the honour of battle command. So they're not butting heads exactly, but they're against each other. And um, I'm also going to note that Roos is described as quite brusque in his asking here. So that doesn't really sound like Roos too much, the quiet man. Maybe it does, maybe it does, but that's that's how I took it. So maybe George hadn't quite fleshed out the final design for Roos at this point, although later on he does refer to him as quiet. So who knows? Maybe quietly brusquely asked 
And another one, again concerning the Boltons. Only two days ago, one of Lord Bolton's men knifed one of Lord Sirwin's at the smoking log. So it would be the Boltons in the middle of this strife, wouldn't it? And they even divide it evenly uh, in terms of what happens later on because Roos goes down with Robert Glover and um, things happen there while Ramsay is left up north and he deals more of the Sirwins at the the Battle of Winterfell. So all of this uh, lords of uncertain loyalty and questioning ambition all serves as more early testing for Rob the Lord and especially we see the best example of this is by the great John when he full on just argues with Rob and challenges him straight on challenges his authority and Rob succeeds as he does because I think this is the type of thing he would have seen Ned do on a regular basis not the sending wolves after your your vassals to bite their fingers off exactly but the dealing with quarrelsome lords and um, ambitious lords and reaching lords he rob has ned's cool courtesy but he doesn't go making any promises or begging anything of anyone and when the great john comes calling rob lays out the consequences and crucially he shows his strength that he said you know he says right okay well we will do that and we will come back and get you for it and uh, you will you'll regret it and that actually ends up earning the great john's love forevermore and just, rob is doing this all at 15 years old it's quite the quite the feat. I don't know if we give him enough credit. We talk about the battle, sure enough, but he does a great job of dealing with his lords, despite what happens later with Rickard Carstark, etc. And like I said, he Rob says we, not I. Not I will come back and deal with you, we. So he's basically saying to all his assembled lords in the room, he's binding them with their own oaths. So it's, it's like a larger scale version of what Catelyn does with Tyrion at the inn. She's saying like we will all come and uh well she says you but she's binding a group together with a common cause as rob is here so the recent chapters of our different povs especially the uh, children they've been having they've often held some hint of the past trying to snag the povs back so sansa before today's chapter and sansa three she kind of semi-lapsed back into her store reality before Ned's downfall. John became the hothead a moment when he was an, when it was announced he was a steward. And leaving Rob's part in this chapter for a minute. Here we have Bran focusing on his disability again now that they're strangers. And bear in mind strangers who are supposed to be his vassals and lessers and look up to him. Now there are strangers there to stare and mock it, stare at or mock him. And he lapses back into frustration and shame. He had kind of got used to it, I think, and everyone at Winterfell got used to it. But now there's strangers around and there's the question of he is kind of figuring out this is going to be a problem for the rest of his life, basically. But that frustration and shame, it does drive him back to the godswood and the promises of the, the crow and his, the dream he had in Bran Free. So while this chapter is mainly concerned with war and politics... Bran's being unable to actually fit into that world with any respect that brings him closer to his own magical storyline and back to the old gods we've got a good quote from Lewin in this chapter it says a man's worth is not marked by a sir before his name lovely good crossover with uh, Sansa's storyline there Sandor again would get on with Maester Lewin confirmed or slightly out of order uh, one more bit about the godswood so Bran he's finding 
piece in the Godwood as Ned always did and as Ned continued to do in King's Landing. So that's just a nice little connection between the two there. So while he's in the Godwood, he has a, uh, a talk with Osha and what's what's going on up north. And it's quite cool. We get some info on Mance Raider for the first time from someone who actually knows him anyway, who's actually spoken with him. Now, for the first time, really, this basically means next to nothing because we don't really know how important Mance is going to be. But it's interesting to see Osha refer to him as sweet and brave and stubborn as well, but she calls Mance sweet, so that's real nice. And to be fair, Osha is our first real wildling interaction at all. And she's also the first person who knows and has experienced whites and white walkers or others and has lived to tell about it. And it's that ironic, that dangling that we get in most POVs is here as well. Not dangling to Bran, more Rob in this case. But it's weird just considering that the message of the others existing, that message being delivered south is kind of ended when Ned swings ice back in Bran 1. But somehow the story, the message has made its Winterfell again in the form of Osha, and yet it's still not listened to. So there's some real tragic irony there. And to finish off, there's the last line of the chapter. Hodor, Bran agreed, wondering what it meant. And given Hodor's earlier struggles with doorways in this chapter, I think we can probably guess what that means now. So of all the um, ga- the mustering and the marching off to war, it's, I think it's quite cool that we saw this through Bran's own scope. We said this is supposed to be the glory bit of riding off to war. and But this is actually quite a sad chapter because we see it through Bran's perspective and he's the one who gets left behind so that's very effective again for the first time readers for the rereaders we know what will happen to most of these men and we know that rob will not come back to winterfell he won't see bran he'll die thinking that bran is already dead and it's just another unique aspect of a song of ice and fire where we follow bran and his now lonely castle instead of the glorious knights riding off we don't get the noise of horses and war horns we get the silence of the winterfell yard afterwards a really sobering chap. Let's go somewhere with a bit more action. Like Essos. Let's go back to Vastoff Rack and Daenerys 6, the one of the assassination plan. And so again, let's talk about the structure and Danny and where she's fitting into the overall of Game of Thrones here. So whilst her her chapters have kind of been dotted around and there's quite really big time gaps between them all, that's gonna change slightly now as we get into the third act because Daenerys is gonna move into center stage. We lose Ned and Daenerys becomes kind of the main story. She has most of her chapters here right at the end. Because King's Landing, like I say, is wearing is winding down. The preparation for the War of the Five Kings is rising, and Daenerys is kind of the not the main character at the end, but certainly she takes a more prominent role. And so it begins really with of Khal Drogo refusing to indulge Daenerys in her thoughts about heading west and invading Westeros. He's just got no interest in it. We know the reasons why. And he kind of says in no uncertain terms, really, that while Daenerys is honoured and special and he certainly seems fond of her in some respect, she has no say in the actual rule of the Dothraki. It is what Drogo says, that's what goes, and she has not really got any power to change his mind. So surely this plays a part in Daenerys going back to thinking of herself as a dragon a bit later in the chapter. She's just too strong-willed for such a B-roll. She was never meant to just kind of sit quietly and watch Drogo rule the Dothraki. That would have never done for her, I don't think. And obviously we know it ends up not. So we get another description of uh, Vaste Dothraki and how that works. And it's actually got a pretty... They've 
been smart about how they've set faced off rack up we spoke about the spiritual side of things before but now we get a really good in- explanation of how the Dothraki profit from both eastern and western merchants coming together and they even pay gifts to the Dothraki for the honour of trading with each other so the Dothraki they're pretty uh, pretty business savvy they've got a bit of a monopoly here yeah you can come uh, sell your wares but you're going to have to pay us first oh, well are we going to pay anything no 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 you give us gifts and uh, behave or you will regret it. So, good, well done Dothraki there. So, that, after that, the main crux of the chapter is obviously the assassination. So, you know, she gets to explore these markets and um, she starts to feel a bit more alive. She returns to those themes of Dragonhood, like I said, being the last Targaryen. And that's something she probably shied away from in the immediate days after Viserys' death. She probably didn't want to think too much about dragons and and her family and her past too much but now she's waking up a little bit and it says it's the first time she laughs since Viserys' death but to be fair to her she does make an attempt to talk herself out of Westeros and her heritage and kind of say well I could have this life that Drogo Dothraki life and that would be pretty good but that just kind of falls apart fairly quickly because at the end of the day she can't deny the dragon inside her and she finds herself drawn to the eggs again that's kind of similar to the last chapter where Bran is finding himself drawn back to the heart tree. These people try and branch out a bit, but they're being drawn back to where they should be, I guess, is one way to look at it. So talking of the actual uh, assassination attempt in general, so <laughs> Mr. Wine Merchant, he's he's pretty, he's incredibly inept, basically, when you look back on it. He's sweaty, stammering. If there isn't any clearer sign that he's up to something... I don't know what it would be. To be fair, I hadn't actually ever considered uh, before my reread this time that the attempt was specifically supposed to fail instead of succeed and that this this poor wine merchant guy is actually just the fool guy. He's the patsy from Varys and Illyro. But the quick action of the merchant captain, I think, as he's touched on, certainly suggests it was all prearranged and they knew that this guy was going to fail and they just wanted to piss off Drogo, basically mission accomplished there and it's that threat of uh, against Rago that snaps Daenerys into her definite stance as it was with Viserys' final act he, he pointed the sword that was when Daenerys swore off Viserys for forever as we spoke of last week same here it's Rago by being in danger that really snaps her awake basically so Drogo's anger uh, at this he certainly plays into what Varys and Illyro wanted Drogo is now insistent on coming to brutalise Westeros in the worst of ways, and that, as he details in that speech, the very worst of ways. And I guess we should, probably shouldn't ignore Daenerys's part in that, considering her ending on the show. Hmm. Just uh, not completely innocent there. Uh, another note on Drogo here. So we've already had one king go on a hunt and then die because of the wounds he sustained in Robert and the, the famous boar. Here we have another king, or Carl, and he went on a hunt and he took a wound as well. This time they're just stretches. He killed the uh, the lion or whatever it was. And uh, Trogo is still alive and powerful. He's actually quite happy about the scars he's got. He even shows them off to his wife. So I think this is George tricking the reader into thinking that maybe this is a changing of the guard. The old kind of rubbish kings in, in Robert are gone. This is now the age of the young, strong kings like Drogo. 
And uh, yeah, I think George is saying, oh yeah, he, Jogo, he's really strong. Look, he's barely got some scars. He definitely won't die soon. Especially not something just like a, a wound. No way, he's way too strong for that. I think uh, that's George playing with us again. And again, I've got another quote just to finish off this this half of the podcast. And it's Daenerys thinking, she wondered if the gods of burned cities could still answer prayers. Yeah, that's a good point, can they? I assume that Daenerys is going to be wondering this a lot more after Miriam Mazda's gods or magic or whatever you want to call it gets to work and uh, what happens there. Okay, back to Westeros, Catelyn 8. The one with the Stark reunion and also the one with some war planning, some campaigning and off we are on the march. Rob has already made his way down to Moat Caelin and now Catelyn is joining him along with Sir Brynden and the two Manderly sons, Sir Willis and Sir Wendell. So... First things first for Rob, they ask pretty quickly when Catelyn makes her entrance, where's Tyrion? I thought you had Tyrion, isn't that what started this whole thing in the first place? So Rob, he's he's already lost Tyrion before he even has him, and he's going to lose Jamie later on due to no fault of his own. So I think this chapter is setting the tone a little bit for most of Rob's campaigns, like he himself will say later, and so will others. He wins all the battles, but it doesn't he doesn't win the war, and thus everything adds to naught in the end. So I think that's George giving us a little hint, even now when everything is still hopeful and there hasn't even been any battles yet. Rob is losing things out of his control already. And the crux of this chapter is Catelyn and Rob talking about basically what could go wrong, what could go right also, but obviously the focus is if this doesn't work, what's going to happen to us, and Catelyn tells Rob in no uncertain terms. She wants Rob to be the man for this task, given that Ned is... She wants Ned saved, obviously. She wants Sansa and Arya saved, of course. But does it really have to be her own son? That's the... what She, she knows it does, at the end of the day, but she wishes it doesn't. She wants him to be that man, but she wants him to remain her young baby boy as well. She does a pretty good job of resisting that feeling publicly and keeping on the political mask, keeping calm, treating him as a as a um, lord of an army, the lord of Winterfell, not a king yet, but still acting essentially the same way. But then once they're alone, the f- it kind of pings back, pays back double in, in terms of her trying to paint Rob as her little boy. She gives him solid advice. She really does, and she tries to bolster him up a bit. But then each line, if you look back at it, it comes laced with something linked to his youth or his past and just keeps making that connection she can't let go of it which is fair enough she's a terrified mother whose son is riding to war so you, you can you would naturally make those you would cling to that a bit stronger than usual how easy it might have been to give in and send rob home or shame him in front of the other lords or something like that but she is able to resist it's quite an amazing feat for a woman who's already nearly lost one son already had one son nearly murdered there's now two daughters in captivity, as far as she knows, or one missing, and also a husband in captivity, and her whole way of life threatened. To say nothing of Hoster and Edmure, who are right in the path of danger, and Lysa, who just seems a bit of a nut job. So to maintain that poise, like her daughter is on a, in this previous chapter, obviously, is uh, is brilliant, really. It's a really wonderfully rich chapter for seeing the depth of Rob and Catelyn's relationship and how Rob still needs the guidance of a parent and how Catelyn is able to fight against herself, basically, 
and give that to him, provide that steady hand and that advice in Ned's absence and just be be that support network for him basically when at a time when he's not supposed to be asking for a support network he can't turn around to the great John and unleash a bit like he does with Catelyn having said that I can't really agree with Catelyn's assessment that someone else could have taken command that seems like a disaster from all angles to me even if the war ends peacefully in some way and everything even if Ned gets returned and everything works out okay Rob is forever regarded as either a coward or a weakling or something like that. And as we've just seen in Bran's chapter, the Northern Lords will try and take advantage of that, whether your last name is Stark or not. So we really can't have that. But let's say that the war continues as it does. And the Northern Force, which, remember, does actually kind of fracture with Rob, Rob's leadership, and that's with most of them being incredibly loyal to Rob, it already fractures. So it's sure to splinter apart if they're just left to squabble among themselves. If you put the Great John in charge, doesn't seem like it would go well. But Roos in charge of everything, my God. Uh, can you imagine? Anyone, really. You can't. By naming anyone commander other than himself, he would be shaming all the others and it would, just, it would be a mess. So I think she might be wrong in that respect, but uh, it's pretty dead on. Most of the time. Speaking of dead on, Rob does shine bright as a military mind in this chapter. We get our first, not our first, but some early hints about, well, basically, Rob has been listening all his life. These lessons from Ned and Roderick Cassell and everyone else, they've been going in. It's Rob who has the idea about splitting the Northern Force and he who correctly guesses Tywin's reactions, as well as also clicking that Tywin was trying to draw him away from Riverrun in the first place, as we're going to learn in the next Tyrion chapter. All you can really lay at Rob's feet is that he chooses Roos to um, to lead that other Northern Force. But then again, can you actually blame Rob? Is it it's kind of forgivable at this point in time? Uh, I think it's Dance, Stan, uh, Stan, it's later in Dance that Roos explains to Ramsay that he was very careful not to give any cause for concern to Rickard or Ned. He just kind of kept himself to himself. So although he is very obviously creepy and weirds Rob out a bit, that's not enough of a reason to not give him command and Rob doesn't know any other reason not to, basically. Why not? Catelyn is right. You need a cunning man. Oh, who have we got who's cunning? Oh, that weird bloke over there, the pale one. He'd probably be quite good at this. So it's fair enough. Even though we can look back and say that was a bad decision, we can't really blame Rob looking back at it. I'm going to read a Catelyn quote here when she's talking about Ned to Rob. She says, He is brave, but that is very different. And that seems like an almost direct continuation of Ned's famous advice to Bran about bravery and when a person can be brave. So way to go with the team parenting, Ned and Catelyn. Let's give you a point for that. Another quote uh, from earlier in the chapter, we're going to shift the focus from Catelyn and Rob to Theon here. He says, I had not looked to see you here, my lady. So I think from that we get a little bit of resentment from Theon there. It's, he doesn't really want Catelyn there, I think, at this point. Even though his overall resentment for the Starks is mostly safe for Ned at this point, it's not Catelyn didn't take him as a ward, she just wound up with him. I would guess that she likely kept up the reminders to Theon that he was a ward kind of in the similar way she did with Jon's being a bastard. Maybe not as much because Fionn isn't a, a mark on her or Ned's honour. 
So she's definitely not going to be as harsh, but I doubt she let Theon forget it either. She probably didn't let him think that he was a, a Stark in any way. And also Theon probably knows, he's smart enough to know that he has a bit less of a say in things now, considering that he is uh, constant, constantly saying the opposite, basically, to Catelyn. He's now got a, a voice against the kind of thing he would do. I think we're going to see that a bit later maybe next week in uh, Catelyn's next chapter. And also, funnily enough, I, I had to double-check this, but the I had not looked to see you here, my lady, is pretty much word for word exactly what Stannis says uh, to Catelyn in Clash when she when he meets with her and Renly. So that's, the, that's a nice little link there. I really enjoy the descriptions of Moat Kaelin and how easily it can be underestimated by someone like Brynden Blackfish. You wouldn't expect, actually, to be underestimating a place like this. But I just also like that it's a different kind of defence than we will see most other places in Westeros. Normally we get told about tall, strong walls, but here it's the land itself doing most of the defending. And seeing as this is supposed to be a result of the children of the forest, which I know as he's talked about a lot on Sunday, this, it just serves as a very a much more interesting border between the north and the southern kingdoms that separate Normally, what separates the other six kingdoms, really, it might be a river, it might be a road, nothing that interesting. Here we've got something something old and natural and looks after itself. The wall defends itself. I get that vibe from the neck as well. I hope we get to see a bit more of that come winds and dream. Grey Wind, he shows us two sides of himself in these chapters. First off, the ferocious against the great John, last chapter. But here he's showing the opposite. He's quite capable of being quite capable of being kind and gentle with Catelyn. If he likes you, you're in. So yeah, I think, as he's mentioned in my note about how Catelyn basically becomes Rob Cam for the end of Game of Thrones and certain periods going forward in Clash and, and uh, Storm. But that's not to say that she is the next, or the first, really, Aereo Hotar. She's not just a pure camera who's watching. She gets truly involved in the war effort and Rob's war councils, as we see here. She is giving strong advice, he actually goes out on diplomatic missions later and has a real effect, not always for the best with um, some decisions, but she has an effect on the war. She's not just a simple bystander, and I've always, I've really loved that about her, and we get to see it a bit here. And later on we'll get more explanation of why that is, and her ability on this because of her childhood with Hoster, but that, that will come later. So finally for this chapter... If you are a fan of uh, Stark family reunions, I recommend you reread this chapter a few more times because this is literally the only one we ever get. We'll come close a few more times, Bran and John, etc. But so far, that's all we got. I'm sure we'll get more one day. But for now, these five books, after it all goes wrong for everyone, Catelyn and Rob are the only two that join back together. And uh, it's wonderful to watch that and see how their relationship goes forward. It's one of the best storylines, in my opinion. So let's transition there from a nice, lovely family moment and a strong relationship to quite the opposite. Yes, it is time for Tyrion 7, the one with Tywin. Dun, 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 dun. Now, a lot to say about Tywin. I think uh, as he's got to a lot of it, but <laughs> we could probably go on all day. We have a podcast or three just about Tywin and his relationship with Tyrion. And this is our first introduction to both the man and that relationship. So Tywin is meant to be presented to us as a larger-than-life character. He's the, the biggest player, the most overall player, I think, than any other we've encountered so far, really. At least publicly, you can argue that Varys and Littlefinger have their 
cast their nets just as wide, but they are more in secret. Tywin Lannister is public. Everyone is supposed to know him, is supposed to fear him. He is the owner of Westeros in many ways, if you want to look at it. Especially now that Robert has died, obviously. And he's uh, Tywin, he's already had his fair share of build-up uh, throughout the book. But at the beginning of this chapter, are specific hints as well. There's the camp's strict defences and his own grand pavilion. The fact that he went nuclear on the inn, despite being just happening to be a place where something bad happened to Tyrion, no, through no fault of his own, which we'll come back to in a second. It says about him being um, not, a, not a man by half measures, and we've got direct examples of that very early on in the chapter. Now, as a, we can kind of just plonk down a mirror in the middle of this in the middle of this chapter and this conversation between Tyrion and Tyrion because we'll see we're going to see very much later on how Tyrion can reflect Tywin but we have it here as well George gets a lot less subtle all of a sudden in the potential for dark Tyrion in this chapter we've had again spots of it throughout his Game of Thrones chapters the first six but but now we're really getting full on he he, Tyrion has a derision about the clansman's form of democracy and that that's okay, that's one thing but he is also very clearly thinking about manipulating and using the clansman to one day, one day bring horror down on the Vale at large and I think Aziz might have mentioned this isn't him looking at he wants revenge on Lysa or Catelyn or anyone in particular he wants kind of bad stuff like a mini version of what Drogo is promising almost and we get a real insight into why Tyrion might have come into this type of person we get a real insight into how he felt growing up because he says himself all his insecurities come rushing up as soon as he sees Tywin basically so we can figure this is basically how Tyrion has felt his entire life his childhood especially when he was around Tywin a lot more and just everything he probably felt bad about in general was magnified a thousand times so we can see why this he's having these thoughts here and why he's having, um, why this conversation between the two of them is so difficult. We also have the conversation between the Tywin and the Mountain Clans, which I think is he's got to. I very much doubt Tywin has ever really given much thought to the Mountain Clans of the Vale. I don't think it would have bothered him too much in the past. But he is very adept at being able to charm when he needs to, just as Tyrion did in his previous chapter. It's the exact same thing. It's shown even better when he, he starts suggesting that the, the men of the North, Rob's army, are too much for the clans. It's a supreme ability to read the room, and he knows instinctively that flattery plus some reverse psychology is going to suit him much more than just either intimidating or handing over some coins. And it's that kind of skill and um, that innate ability we've seen in Tyrion so much so again we're just getting stronger and stronger links between father and son. In terms of the war effort it's pretty clear from they have this little military catch up Kevin and Tywin and Tyrion it's pretty clear that at this moment in time the Lannisters are in a clearly superior position at this point in the war. Kind of seems like Tywin could have ended things very quickly which would allow him to if he had not thought Rob as undeserving of respect. If he had just given him the respect that Rob deserves, things could have gone very differently. And it's a bit like Robert's accidental kickoff of the uh, quote-unquote invasion by the Dothrakis by sending the assassins. He ironically kicked that off by sending assassins, even though he meant to finish it. 
Tywin, unwittingly, makes the War of the Five Kings a much larger affair by rushing off to try and end it quickly. If he had waited for Rob's forces to come down and he kept his defensive position, things could have gone different again. And speaking of this, uh, the oncoming force, they say at the end that uh, the Normanners are coming down. This forced march of Roos, the forced night march, is probably our first real clear sign. Easier to see on reread, but it's our first clear sign that he's got his own agenda and is he's got a plan at bettering his own position. This is how far back it starts, I think we can declare with some uh, some confidence. A forced night march down to Tywin is a big mistake, and uh, like I say, and as Kevin says, they're in a superb position, they're in the better position. So coming all the way down to them, um, not a good idea by Roos, especially when the idea was to draw Tywin more north in the first place. So I think we can see what Roos is up to. So it's a bit like Ned's time in King's Landing. It seems like there are multiple opportunities on both sides, you could say, to end the whole affair pretty quickly and conclusively. But again, we get our alas alarm out. They were all dangled and none taken. Hmm. It's pretty interesting that in Tywin's first appearance, we see him interacting with people who don't really know him, really respect him or care about him, because when does that ever happen again with Tywin? Everyone knows Tywin. Like I say, he's the... He's kind of the owner of Westeros. If there's one name that probably everybody knows, it's Tywin Lannister. Apart from these clansmen. They may maybe they have heard of the name, very possible. They're not completely detached from uh, Westeros, but do they really care? No. Not particularly. And it's a really it's a great contrast between Tyrion's growing apprehension and people who do care about Tywin. We get from that very quickly to the clansmen don't give a, a twig basically can't um go past the chapter unfortunately without talking about poor masha heddle and i know aziz touched on this as well but we really we got to give her due respect here so as we discussed back in catelyn's kidnapping of Tyrion, way back at the inn before the Game of Thrones has been brought down on her through no fault of her own. She just owned an inn and in one day walked Tyrion and on the same day happened to walk Catelyn and everything went bad from there. She was literally just a witness and for, for being that witness she earned a horrific and gruesome death. So if we needed any clearer sign about who Tywin is as a person and his opinions on the lower class or just other people in general, we've got it here. He can't pretend that the killing of Masha Heddle protects the Lannister name or removes any possibility of danger in any way. He can't even really claim that this is about honour. I don't think anyone is laughing at Tywin Lannister and their cups because uh, Masha Heddle was there and she got away with seeing it. I don't think anyone is quite that loopy, just Tywin himself. But then in the same in the same vein, Tyrion unfortunately is also incredibly dismissive of Masha's death. He chooses a kind of, a strange kind of sarcasm rather than feeling any horror or sadness or even guilt maybe that he not that it's his fault of how Tywin acted, but he was there. It was his Game of Thrones that did this to Masha, but no he doesn't. So we get really huge vibes of Tyrion being the true Tywin again. And Considering that Masha is a member of a lower class than Tywin and Tyrion, I think it kind of links the other relationships that bind 
Tyrion and Tyrion together, that, that being Tysha and Shay. So we've got kind of past and future, and in the middle right now is Masha. And obviously then that's not, she doesn't have the, she's not as large a character for either of these men as Tysha or, or Shay, but still, it's, uh, there are similarities. Tysha is obviously a much, much larger crime on Tywin's part, but her ghost is very much present here in this chapter, even if neither of them say it or Tyrion doesn't think it. But it, Tyrion is thinking about Tysha every time he sees Tywin, let's be honest. It's impossible not to. How could he not? And that's probably why the readers were informed of Tysha just one Tyrion POV prior. And Tywin's violence against Masha just reminds us of what he is capable of against lower class and against females. Having said that, on the flip side, I guess you could argue that whenever Tyrion walks in the room, that Tywin is reminded of uh, the pain and death that Tyrion, quote-unquote, gave to Joanna. And But then again, I think Tyrion is probably justified in his thinking of Tysha every time he sees Tywin. Tywin, not really justified in thinking that way about his own son. It's more kind of certifiably crazy, really. So that's a light note, isn't it? Should we uh, should we go for a better one? No, well, tough, because we're going to Sir Barry getting fired. Although that is kind of a cool moment, I guess. Anyway, Sansa 5, the one where Sir Barry gets fired. So although we get the obviously very bad idea of dismissing Sir Barry and just that kind of ineptitude to him very quickly from Sir St. Joffrey, that's not the only example I think including um, in their request when they ask people to come and pay fealty, they ask for children to be included in that. As uh, That's probably a pretty bad idea, given that almost all of Westeros are not going to forget, or they haven't forgotten. It's been less than 20 years since another king asked for exactly that, and then killed everyone who came. So they're probably not too keen to do that, especially given that this is, if they know Joffrey... They're very. They're definitely not keen, and a lot of them will not know Joffrey. It'll just be some random, um, not random, but it will be an unknown young boy. But a lot more know Cersei, and they probably still think it's a bad idea to do that. It's a good way to think that to many lords, the ones obviously a large distance away, and again the small folk, they only ever look upon the symbol of the Iron Throne. It doesn't matter who sits it. It's just. The same people with different names. It's just another Ares come to them for intents and purposes. I would rather say if we could go back and ask George for extra POVs from from any book, I think Cersei here in this late Game of Thrones might have to be my choice. I just I think I'd love to read her reactions. At, she's basically realised her life ambition. She's taken at least in her mind she's taken control of the entire realm she's got joffrey on the throne she's the queen regent she probably thinks the small council are under her thumb everything's going brilliantly i'm sure father and jamie will deal with the tullies and then basically the world is hers you can almost smell the, the smugness coming off the pages i'd just love to read her as funny as it is reading her feast chapters i think this would be brilliant as well Aziz and Shea, they, they spoke a lot about uh, Barristan and his part in this chapter, so I won't go on it too much, but I do think this is the the first time we really see a decisive Barristan. He's kind of been quite passive and almost for, near forgettable in this book so far. He's had a couple of conversations with Ned, but we've not seen a lot from him, given what we get from him later and what we get from him in this very chapter. 
obviously the idea of him being removed from the Kingsguard is what sparks this this fight and this retaliation in him. But I like to think that he also has some regret maybe over his indecision in the throne room in Ned's last chapter. Maybe, possibly. If you remember, he kind of freezes and doesn't know what to do. And I'd like to think that maybe that's spurring on him on here as well. I do also like that he gets to speak his mind on his fellow Kingsguard and kind of throw a bit of shade their way. As we will later see when Jamie comes back to King's Landing as Lord Commander, it's, it's really hard to keep your tongue when you know how bad your co-workers are. <laughs> so Barristan has probably been keeping this stuff to himself for years and he, he finally gets to let loose a bit, even if it is still in a pretty respectable, classically Barristan respectable style. So this Santa chapter, it's a much slower chapter in terms of plot development than the last few ones we've read through. We kind of we really whizzed through Ned's downfall on the opening movements for the War of Five Kings. So I think this one serves as a little breather, allows King's Landing to catch up with itself and for Sansa to settle into the new reality. So speaking of Sansa, she's praying in the Sept a lot, it's said. She only occasionally goes to the Godswood. Now, through Clash and Storm, she's going to be finding herself in the Godswood a lot more. She feels much more at home there. She's going to slowly separate herself from those southern gods and what she associates with them, i.e. the southern lifestyle that she's going to come to fear and hate. And she's going to return to the old gods of her family and home. So that's another one, a nice connection to Bran, as we said earlier on, finding his way back to the godswood, but also for Sansa and rediscovering herself as a, as a Stark, even as she gets isolated away from other Starks. There's also a little Dontos sighting here, speaking of the, the godswood. We see Littlefinger chatting to Dontos Holod at the beginning. And, okay, it's, it's too early for them to be formulating any specific plans about Sansa's escape, surely. But then again, we don't know if that's the only thing they ever worked on. Maybe Littlefinger used Dontos in some other capacity previously. Who knows? Either way, it's uh, some superb groundwork from George here. And finally for this chapter, one last uh, note on Sansa and Sir Barry. So it says that Sansa stops on Barristan's white cloak on the, after he's thrown it down and left it there. And it's just interesting because in the next book she's going to be beaten in almost the exact same spot and she gets covered with a different white cloak, this one from Sansa again. And that, that cloak she is left with later after the Battle of the Blackwater when Sandor comes to her. So there's a lot of symbolism of Sansa and White Cloaks, and that's probably going to continue in some way in the series. I won't talk on that. There's people, again, who've done a much better job than I could do, so I'll leave that there and take us instead to our final chapter of the day and the final chapter of Mr. Eddard Stark, Eddard 15, the one in the Black Cells. And Aziz and Shaley did a wonderful job of relaying the the weight of this scene and how monumental it is, even though it is really just a chapter with a conversation in, it's a, a real uh, tentpole of the book and the, the arcs of obviously Ned, but also John and Faris and really the whole realm. It, a lot of it comes down to this, uh, this chapter and this conversation here. For me, I think there's some definite shades of the Dance of Dragons epilogue with a both feature Varys very heavily and they both feature Varys with a doomed man. Um, okay, fair enough. The, 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 the latter one has Varys actually pulling a trigger and uh, doing the killing himself, whereas uh, he's not doing that with Ned, but he still kind of 
unloads and is probably the most honest we ever see Varys, which isn't saying a whole bunch, but still. Maybe that's because he knows both partners are doomed or it could likely be doomed. Now Varys, he flat out says that it's his job to be untrustworthy, which to me smacks of what Littlefinger's been trying to get across about himself throughout the entire book. But you get the sense that Littlefinger does it to just kind of be cool and edgy, wants people to think he's untrustworthy because like, they know he gets some kind of kick out of that after all. But his uh, his job description is just to provide money, actually, whereas Varys it is actually his, like he says, it's, it's his job, it's in his job description. So I, for, I, for me personally, I think Varys truly is what Littlefinger strives to be, hmm. personally. And Aziz got to my note about how desperate Varys is to keep Stannis away and why that is. And I think that's a channel to look forward into the future through the series. We can look through and see how this links up and why Varys helps Tyrion in Clash of Kings so much because he doesn't want Stannis there. And it plays into this chapter too. Ned can't go free because he would presumably go and team up with Stannis or help that in some way. But the wall is a viable option because Ned, of all people, would not forsake his vows in of the Night's Watch in order to influence the war. He wouldn't get there, I don't think, and start writing letters to Stannis and say, well, you can do this, this and this, and oh, by the way, this might help you. Out of everyone, Ned would go to the wall and he would be a member of the Night's Watch and he would probably leave it all behind. There's a good interesting argument about that if Ned got to the wall and Rob was still fighting a war for some, for whatever reason. It would be a very big test of faith and vows there. But alas, alarm, we don't get it anyway, so let's not take wake our time. Let's not waste our time talking about it. We can combine the this information from Varys with the information from Tyrion's chapter a moment ago and show how quickly Cersei's Joy of ruling is probably already going sour. Jamie and Tywin have been drawn west and north, both away from King's Landing, leaving her to worry about Stannis, as Varys tells us here. We might have to wait until Feast of Crows for Cersei POV, but we don't have to wait that long to see huge Cersei blunders like I mentioned a minute ago in the, in Sansa's chapter. The possibility of Ned dying in the Black Cells, or even being sent to the Wall, Likely solves nothing implicating the Starks. I don't think Rob will lay down his sword just because Ned's at the wall. That's not what Rob was asking for. The war will go on and Stannis will still come in swinging. And it might be he might even land a bigger punch than he already did. So Varys, he gets on to eventually kind of, not threatening Sansa, but he definitely pushes Ned's buttons by saying that she could die. And I think he's, he's generally lying about that possibility. This would have been a, an even worse move for the Lannisters somehow. It could only succeed in worsening their bargaining position. Worsening their bargaining position. Although, having said that, they do end up killing Ned, so any amount of stupidity is possible on their part. But Ned, unfortunately, buys it when he really doesn't need to. As far as people know, the Starks are riding in force and they can't really make a riding in force whilst the threat of Stannis grows large and everyone wonders what Renly's next move is going to be. It's Cersei who's on the ropes, and seemingly being hemmed in on all sides. She has enemies on every direction. Rob doesn't. The Starks don't. But Ned is he's being a bit foolish here and he can't see through the he can't see past the first layer and what's directly in front of him. So he gets himself in some big old trouble, which is all all a bit needless. If only news of the Whispering Wood had arrived in time, because that probably would have changed everything. Once Jamie's captured and Cersei has word of that, 
changes the entire Lannister perspective on the war and Cersei and Tywin both would suddenly be much much more careful with what happens to Ned because they've got Jamie now. I wonder in early on in the chapter Ned says there's a bit about Littlefinger's face haunting him and I wonder if that's because Littlefinger is basically the antithesis of honour and so he's He's basically the opposite of Ned Stark, as well as obviously the cause for Ned's downfall as well. And it's that honour that has Ned so frustrated. He knows that that is why he's in his current frustration. That is why he's in his current situation. And he probably feels trapped by his own sense of honour. But likely he also knows that if he had to play it all again, knowing where he'd wind up, he would probably do it the exact same way, because that is just who he is. And we love him for it, even if it's... The, even if it's even if this is the last time we see him, or the last time we see his POV anyway. Speaking of, I just wonder, lastly, last point for today, surely, surely there were no first-time readers who gem- who thought this was Ned's final chapter. No way, this doesn't even have, it doesn't feel like a final chapter at all, does it? But then that is uh, probably George's intention, and he got us good. So with that, that's our eight chapters today, you get one extra, lucky you. And uh, I think I'm right in saying that there's going to be a bit of a break here through late August, a big, a few, about three weeks or so. I'm sure Aziz and the History of Westeros account will be telling you when they're back and whenever they are, I shall be there also, carrying their armour and ready to scrub their boots. Or maybe I'll just do a podcast. I'm not sure which. Either way, thank you for listening today. Like I said at the beginning, feel free to check out our Patreon or just get in contact anyway, because I like talking to the people. The dog doesn't really talk back to me. I have to wait for the wife to come home. So if any of you want to help out with that, that would be brilliant. In the meantime, enjoy the break. Isle of Faces will be still putting out an episode during that little gap, Valoridas gap, because uh, we've got some Patreon episode, Patreon-only episodes coming, and we might get some more in there as well, if there's time. I'm a very busy boy. Anyway, until next time, have a good day everyone, see you later.